Welcome to the AI First Business Podcast with Tina Yazdi, where we show you how teams, companies, and leaders are turning AI hype into ROI. Thanks for having me, Tina. Yeah, thanks for joining. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do, who you are? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me in this podcast. Uh, my name is Amin Dorostanian. I was born in Tabriz, Iran, 1989. Uh, from my childhood, I was fascinated by uh, mathematics. I started uh, from very early ages to actually exploring uh, different types of uh, hard mathematical problems, trying to solve them. I actually once tried to solve the proof Goldbach's conjecture. I'm not sure if you know about it, but it's one of the unsolved problems of the centuries. But yeah, other than that, I actually started studying uh, computer science. I fell in love with programming. I started actually with Turbo Pascal back then. Turbo Pascal was one of the, let's say, early programming languages that the students could, could also experiment with. And that was a point that I actually learned how fascinating computers can become by being able to program them using simple logic and how you can build really sophisticated and complicated piece of software using simple, simple rules. I started gaming, writing games in uh, Turbo Pascal like Pac-Man and other stuff. And that was the key actually for me to be more interested in software engineering, computer science, and eventually machine learning. Afterwards, I, when I was studying computer science, I came across neural networks. That was kind of the ignition of my passion, let's say, to, towards machine learning and AI. And I started digging into it. I was really fascinated how these neural networks can learn from data and how we can train them. I saw that there was a lot of hype around it, around going around it going on. And it was actually kind of on and off through the, the years. And, and ben, um, when, around what year would you say that those things came into your attention? Yeah, I think it was around the year 2006 uh, when yeah, when there was some breakthroughs using GPUs to train deep learning models. Uh, but actually, before that, other breakthroughs happened, which I realized later afterwards. One of the really fascinating people that were the pioneers of AI were Jürgen Schmidhuber and his student uh, called Seppo Kreiter. Uh, they were basically the fathers of LSTMs, which has been known as let's say, the best models for speech recognition, which is used in Siri and other voice uh, recognition uh, software. Jürgen Schmidhuber and his student was actually one of the first people to understand what's wrong with deep learning models. Because we, the, the, actually, the, this knowledge of deep learning has come from 1954. So it's, it's really from a long time ago that we knew about multi-layer neural networks that had deep layers but we were not able to train them. And he was one of the people who discovered how we can train these models by something, a concept called gradient, gradient vanishing problem. Uh, and by solving that, we were able to actually really train deep neural networks. And that was kind of a, yeah. Yep, and for anyone who's listening who may be a bit new to the conversation about AI, especially the more technical terms, I know these are like, would you mind for like a layman explanation describing like what is a neural network, what is machine learning, and what is AI? Can you just give us a brief overview of what these things are and mean? 
Yeah, that's uh, actually a very quite interesting uh, question because there's a spectrum of definitions for this. AI is different than machine learning and machine learning is different than data science. So I also have my own definition. Sorry? Did, did you all intersect, would you say? Well, yeah, there is an intersection indeed. I think, let's say machine learning is a subset of AI and deep learning is a subset of machine learning, if you want to kind of visualize that concept. But in my opinion, artificial intelligence is a way of trying to mimic human intelligence and trying to come up with a general problem solver. And in the end, what I actually come up with by really breaking down the problem of defining intelligence, I think the capability of compressing information from environment is called intelligence. And how much you can, the capacity of you being able to compress this information from your environment is actually defining your capability and your intelligence level. I think to a very good extent, and most of the animals have this, they can learn from their environment, they can actually predict and imagine what's going to happen next in their environment. And this is some sort of intelligence. But as humans, we have more capacity, we have more imagination. And I think imagination is the key to intelligence. And that's one of the reasons I think scientists were actually trying to actually go towards this direction recently. And there's also actually, we came to this discussion while I was actually introducing myself. So I'm going to kind of rewind back to that direction. And this was actually the initial point of my motivation towards learning what AI is and why I really love intelligence. And the reason that actually that was the case was I was trying to answer very sophisticated and complicated uh, questions of my own personal life. Why am I here? Why do I exist? And in order to solve that, I was I realized that my intelligence is not enough for doing that. So I had two choices, either to build a superhuman or solve these questions by a super AI, artificially ma making it. The first one was more on biological terms. So I had to study genetics, build a super species that is super intelligent to be able to solve my problems. And the second one was through mimicking it via AI. And I chose the second one because I was more familiar and I thought that's a better path. And yeah, then I started digging into AI and really getting into more hands-on real-world applications of AI. And Is this in an academic setting? Is this you just lost in a black rabbit hole on the internet? How, what, did that, what did that process look like for you? Yeah, it was a really big puzzle for me, actually. I think this is a really big puzzle that you need to find different pieces of this uh, and put them together from internet, from books. Because whenever you want to really understand what machine learning is, it's all over the place. Everybody has different type of definition. Everybody talks about different models. It's all over the place. But whenever you, I, I think one of the reasons that I could actually really understand well, that I didn't really want to accept the fact that I can use these ready-made packages or let's say software or tools that make it easy to, to use them. I wanted to understand deeply how they were, so I started implementing them from scratch. I remember that I started implementing a neural network in C++ and then I realized how it actually really works and it fascinated me. And then I was able to, yeah, when I was using a, a ready-made package, for example, Keras, TensorFlow, whatever, I knew what's, what's going on behind the scenes. And that was 
kind of very satisfying and uh, I realized how I can make more complicated applications on top of it. And yeah, having uh, putting uh, pe- these pieces of puzzle together made me realize how we can leverage this in applications and various industrial applications. I started working in industry. I actually, after my graduation, I started working in a retail uh, company in order to build a, a recommender system, personalized recommender system in order to optimize their sales, uh, which was uh, very eye-opening for me, realizing that as uh, cool as it sounds to be working on AI, it's also very challenging to yeah. actually enter AI. Just to check, where in the timeline are we now? Wait, what, what year did you join this company? <laughs> yeah, this was like 13 years ago, just after I graduated my master's. Okay, so uh, years ago, people were already kind of looking into this. It seems like that's a little, that they were quite an early adopter of this, would you say? Yeah, I think uh, back then, it, some of the companies were really enthusiastic and optimistic about AI. Not like now, which is actually everybody's trying to jump on the train of uh, AI. It's, it's kind of a bubble right now as well. But back then it was like really, uh, they were really seeing the value because it was really showing the value how recommender systems, for example, can effectively reduce the cost and uh, generate leads, for example, in retail and e-commerce industry. And that was one of the really good applications that really brought value. And after that, I uh, went to other industries, for example, energy industry, which we were able to identify a malfunctioning devices in, in the households using the only uh, measuring the main signal on the household and even being able to tell what kind of appliances they're using inside the household only by looking at the patterns of the signals. And that was also one of the interesting points. And uh, gradually, I kind of uh, went to, into different industries and realized how we can really uh, use AI to leverage uh, the power of it in order to reduce costs and optimize what we as humans do in innovation. And that led to, I think, 10 years of uh, industrial experience for myself. I worked at Paul.com back then for three years, and then I joined KLM Airlines, which we were working on mostly operation research consultancy and trying to optimize the uh, the work on the airport and the ground staff. And after that, I started my own consultancy, which I was again involved with different types of customers, mostly in fintech. A very, very interesting project. And here I am. Actually, recently I started a, a new uh, company, which is product-oriented, as you mentioned, Neuroship AI. And that's actually kind of trying to solve one of the most common uh, challenges and problems that I've seen over the years while working with different types of companies in various different industries where I saw that there's a lot of inefficiencies in producing software and where we can actually leverage AI in order to reduce the cost and make it more efficient uh, because most of the time developers are working on uh, very mundane and repetitive tasks where AI can actually come in and really make us more optimized in that sense. So that was one of the uh, problems that I actually faced myself as well uh, during my own work with my clients. And I saw a very big opportunity to do this. And Neuroship AI uh, has came up with a product. We call it Enterprise Coding Assistance, which uh, takes in the knowledge from a very huge knowledge base of the companies. For example, you are using 
Atlassian Confluence, you are using Notion in your company. And of course, you are using GitHub repositories for your code management. And we are taking in all of those information, blending it into uh, one uh, large language model. And after that, we can come up with suggestions on top of the tasks that they have to be carried out. So by um, incorporating the business logic from the knowledge base, we are able to actually produce results that make more sense, kind of customize and personalize solutions for the companies in order to make them more efficient, faster in order to build products, and also only take time of the developer on working on more innovative and high level tasks rather than very mundane or repetitive tasks. So um, this is the third. Cool. Thank you for introducing that. One of the things that you kind of mentioned a few times already is the business value and the impact probably from a business perspective of applying AI, whether that's in inefficiencies or increasing revenue. Can you talk a little bit more about what are some things that you've seen are good practices of thinking about AI in terms of impact? And where do you see that maybe going wrong where, where AI might be treated more as a novelty or that, you know, the, the leadership or company is not really thinking about those things in the right way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is highly related to a dilemma that I've seen in various companies that I work with. This dilemma is about quick wins and long-term investments. So most of the companies are trying to leverage and newly emerged technologies like AI in order to make them more efficient, generate revenues, etc. But at the same time, they also want to be able to manage their risk and also have quick wins. So AI, in, uh, investing in AI can be risky as well because if you don't have the right infrastructure, if you don't have the right uh, talent and uh, right strategic planning, you might actually fail in order to bring value. Uh, that's why also European companies are more towards in a sense that they want to do something with it, but they actually really don't know how to do it. So they kind of start ad hoc experiments, very like isolated experiments, just to see if they can bring value in very small sectors, kind of quick wins. And then they want to try to actually see if they can apply it on other uh, places. So this dilemma that you want to be able to find the sweetest spot between these quick wins and long-term investments, I think itself is very interesting and challenging problem where different companies solve them in different ways. So I think we need to really find a sweet spot in order to, to reach a, the better investment goals with AI. If you want to put a lot of effort, a lot of research on something that you don't know what would be the outcome, it's of course risky. But you need to also be able to experiment and leverage this, be AI ready and of course try new things in order to see if that's going to help you save costs and generate more revenue. What are, you mentioned a few aspects to this, which is the right hires, the right investment, et cetera. If, you know, you were talking to a client right now, what would be your recommendation on maybe like the top two, three, four pillars that they should be thinking about when making an evaluation of this investment? Yeah, I think there are five different pillars, in my opinion, that they need to really take into account. First one is investment in data infrastructure and being able to really govern their data in order to make more smart applications. 
This is actually very important because if you don't have the substantial investment in data infrastructures, it's going to be really costly later on. You need to be able to process large amount of data and transform it. This is very important. Infrastructure. Yeah, infrastructure. Yeah, infrastructure. Yeah. And second one is data collection, processing, and storage. So they need to be able to require practices in order to do proper data collection, labeling, and also be able to reliably train the models. This is the second one, which is, I think, very important. The third one is about cleaning data and validation and labeling, which most of the companies are struggling with that. There is a lot of human labor involved in order to label data. Although there are some startups actually emerging in order to help you with generative AI to label the data, but still, I think there's a challenge in there. Uh, another aspect is ethical framework for data usage, because having GDPR rules, uh, ethical framework for data usage. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, with increasing uh, concerns about data privacy and also GDPR rules, especially in Europe, I think companies are really uh, requiring to be more transparent about, about their AI use cases. This is about respecting uh, users' privacy and also being able to actually be compliant with the rules and uh, regulations. This is a different story, I think, in Europe compared to uh, Northern America. And the last one, I think, is being able to create an AI-supporting ecosystem. And by that, I mean that we need to, beyond just technological aspects, we need to be able to have AI adoption. We need to create an ecosystem that kind of supports this organizational cultures and also being able to really be able to understand what brings value in AI and how we can build a trust, build trust and transparency in that, which is very important as well. Where actually there are different opinions, especially in public. Some people are really afraid of AI because they might actually take over their jobs. These kind of things are happening right now, especially with the rise of OpenAI, ChatGPT, etc. And that's also something that we need to take into account. There's a couple of things here that I want to make sure we dig into. I'd love to circle back to the to the worries around like AI is going to take my job. But before we get back to that, there's something that we spoke about the last time when we were thinking, which is the boring truth about AI adoption, which actually you referred to in your five pillars. Um, I think when people think of AI, this is a bit of a caricature. Some people think of almost like a mad scientist coding away. And three of your pillars are cleaning and validation, collecting data, data infrastructure, um, almost administrative in nature. Can you talk a little bit more um, about that and maybe something that some organizations might misunderstand is the the reality of moving towards AI readiness? Yeah, uh, I think the misconception about AI is that whenever you're using the AI word and as label, it's kind of bringing kind of a coolness factor for your applications. Um, but in, in reality, most of the time you're using really mundane and simple kind of models in, in production. I haven't seen actually maybe just a couple, like uh, one or two companies that really have been using advanced AI technologies. Most of the companies, especially the big enterprises, they've been using very, 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 let's say, uh, elementary machine learning models like logistic regression, linear regression, because they actually saw that this has brought more value compared to investing 
more in deep learning, let's say, because most of the time when we see the hype, especially when deep learning was a hype after uh, 2010, uh, most of the companies try to actually enter this field, try to solve everything with deep learning. But that was not actually a good approach because we didn't know that if it's going to work, you are going to invest a lot in computation power. You are going to invest a lot in talent and also uh, bring a, a lot of data into into the account because deep learning models mostly work better with a lot of data. So in order to be able to face the reality of not having enough data, not having enough labeled data, companies had to really choose to go with very simple ones, linear regression, logistic regression. These are the ones that are actually really used in industry a lot. Or some of the uh, models which have been used mostly in industry is gradient boosting machine. For your reference. A gradient machine? The gradient boosting machine. Sure. Gradient boosting machine. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm going to get... I'm, I'm yeah. Gonna have a very long transcript with links to everything oh. you're putting. For anyone who's... Yeah. Here. Yeah, sure. And... Uh, Actually, GBMs or gradient boosting machines uh, are one of the highly used uh, models in Kaggle. Kaggle is one of the platforms that uh, data scientists and machine learning engineers compete with each other to solve very sophisticated problems in the real world. And that actually shows that most of the time, what is leading research is not what is adopted in real world applications. Maybe that's a kind of a a disappointing or boring part of AI research, but that's the that's the reality that enterprises are kind of realizing right now. But I think with the new high pricing about large language models, again, companies are going to jump into this wagon to try to really adopt it, but then realizing afterwards, no, this is actually not really suitable for us. We have to really adapt more strategic planning with using and adopting AI. A hundred percent. And I think this is like a really important reality that is worth acknowledging. How do you think about, like, I think on one hand, the hype, while it can mislead some people to make like lower quality decisions around the right models to use, the right way to process their data. Personally, I think it's exciting that it is giving a boost to things that otherwise, like maybe if before the lag was 10 or 20 years from these to make it from like the research lab through to an attempt at implementation in a real company, it seems like that gap is like narrowing, so it's not so so long. H how do you balance that? What would be your advice to companies who are enthusiastic, they have the right intentions, they want to move in the right direction, they want to stay ahead of the curve and make these investments? Perhaps they're not like today have all the five pillars in place to do that well, but they do want to move towards it. What is your advice to a company like that? As an example, an enterprise that has good quality data, but because of their business, not a lot of data, right? So a deep learning thing wouldn't really be that useful for them. What would be your recommendation to a company like that? And I think they really want to have a good understanding of, uh, of their business objectives, what they really want to do in terms of business and how AI can play a role there. I, sh I think we should have a definition of AI ready company. And, and in my opinion, those, if you have those pillars that we mentioned before, you can start to become an AI-ready company, but still there are uh, other factors that needs to be in, in the picture. Having a clear AI roadmap, having a clear, uh, let's say, uh, 
path in order to how to integrate AI in order to, in your services and products, and how can it even help you there? Uh, I think the hype is already helping the companies to make this push, and I think in a sense it's really good because they are realizing they should have adopted already AI in their businesses, but. The risk is also there because they need to really be able to understand and put the right roadmap there. Otherwise, they will be going down the road of something that is not going to actually help them. They are going to fail in, in the end and it's going to also cost them a lot. So I think that there, this is about the culture and also understanding of what really AI is fundamentally and philosophically and being able to have uh, the right talents in place in order to help companies is the, the most important thing. But I think naturally this, this kind of evolves and history has shown that uh, whenever there is new technology rises, most of the companies are trying to kind of jump into that. But in the end, there are only a few companies that are actually going to survive and really uh, get value out of it. And those are only companies that really think about the value it brings in, not really the coolness factor. So only focusing on the value that it brings. On that note, um, I'd love to pivot over to something we spent a lot of time about, which is EU versus North America. Can you talk a little bit more about what is in your view the state of AI readiness in the EU slash EMEA versus North America? It's, it seems like you've observed a little bit of a gap there. Yeah, there's definitely a gap there, but of course, there's in both continents, there are very uh, nice developments going on. Uh, they are trying to, um, especially in Europe, they are trying to catch up with the AI uh, research and um, development. But I think one of the main factors that pushes North America in very far is uh, existence of these big tech companies like Microsoft, Google and Facebook. These companies are kind of the main driving factors for America to be able to advance much more compared to Europe. And actually, I've seen this and I can compare this with clouds as well. I think uh, US is way far more advanced in cloud infrastructure compared to Europe. We don't have a very solid and robust cloud provider in Europe. And most of the companies are just depending on, on US and, and that. And that's actually quite bad for Europe. Because if America wants to just turn off the switch, all Europe is in just blackout. And that's also something that is kind of try progressing to happen as well in AI sector, because we've seen a lot of investment in Northern America by these huge tech companies, because they are willing to risk it, because they're seeing a lot of value in that sense. But in Europe, there is a little bit more conservativeness and try to do risk management, which is actually good as well, but kind of slowing down companies in order to innovate. But there are also good companies that uh, I think are innovating in Europe as well. I think uh, we can call, we can count DeepMind in a lot of uh, research that they've been doing recently, but they are actually have been acquired by Google. So I don't know if they count as European company or not, but on the- Where were they founded? Remind me. London, it's a London-based company, yeah, and they have been acquired by Google. But their research in fundamental AI, it's actually quite uh, fascinating. And I think it's the right direction. And on the other side, for the applications, I think Adyen is leading the 
uh, AI research, uh, especially in fintech area. And I've seen also some other startups, especially Graphcore, which is actually trying to catch up with uh, more infrastructure and AI hardware, which is also very promising. There are also dozens of other startups actually rising every day due to hype around generative AI. But I think these three companies are kind of leading uh, AI research and development in, in, in Europe. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those examples. You, you kind of like touched on there are some advantages to the EU ecosystem, such as some of the data protection laws that are in place here are ethically, arguably like, you know, the right choices. Are there other factors that you would say in addition to that, that put the EU ecosystem at an advantage, for example, government investment, the role of academic institutions in this region. Just curious if there's any other advantages. There might not be any that you see here. Yeah, I think EU's regulations can become like a double-edged sword. It could be actually helping companies in order to become really user-centric and value-based company because... EU is really focusing on having data protecting their users. So in a sense, this, this is actually good. But uh, another, another aspect we already mentioned, this can be also slowing down the companies in order to innovate. That's why I think uh, there should be a culture and maybe an infrastructure in place to really prepare companies in order to be able to iterate faster, in order to be able to make innovation faster. But at the same time, also protect customers, protect data, and also the privacy concerns. In that sense, yeah, I think you will eventually catch up. But if you compare the amount of investment from big tech companies in North America compared to Europe, I don't think they really match up. That's why I think actually there was a, this was in news that actually in France, there was a investment of more than 100 million in a generative AI company that was established and founded by uh, some of the alumni of DeepMind. And that's actually showing that Europe is also trying to catch up in that sense. And they're seeing, yeah, they are falling behind. But that's not the case for all the European uh, countries. So this is something that is eventually kind of hit back, I would say. Europe in order to really catch up with with uh, the advances of AI. Awesome. Thank you for elaborating on that one. Um, I just want to circle back to something that came up earlier on the conversation, which is this reoccurring clickbait claim that AI is going to steal all your jobs. Um, curious. So, and, and I think this is like across different industries and I think different people perceive it differently. Like if you're an engineer, that might have a different impact on you than if you work in sales or whatever. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's accurate? Do you think yes, but not yet? Do you think, it, or do you think it's a total misunderstanding of what AI, what changes AI is about? Yeah, I think right. that this is a very valid concern from people uh, towards AI that cannot take their jobs. And I think yes, but not yet is the right answer here. Because we've seen that other technologies coming up with the steam engine, coming up and replacing the jobs of, uh, let's say, people who were working with horses, I don't know, different jobs around it. And this is also happening in most of the jobs that can be automated. 
We have already seen a lot of jobs that are automated using computer programs, but most of the most of the things that we actually as humans do and machines are not able to do is more like decision making and innovative tasks. I think in that sense, uh, there still will be uh, humans that are going to take care of decision making and innovative tasks because there are delicate areas, for example, financial decision making, being able to be this person that actually makes the final decision because most of the time you might want AI to become your assistant but you don't want it to do really execute that decision for you so in a sense it, most of the jobs will be shifted towards new jobs that are using AI as an assistant so if you are not able to adapt yourself to use AI as your assistant then I would say yes your job is in danger uh, but if you are able to adapt yourself to use AI in order to make yourself more efficient, more performant, then no, you don't have anything to worry about. And I also see this in software development and, and my own uh, line of work as well, because software development is also something that can be automated in a sense as well. We've seen that you can show a picture of a website design to AI and it comes up with the front-end code for it, HTML code. So you can say that in a few years, we are not going to need front-end developers just to create UI for us because why should we invest in time for that when uh, AI does it in a few seconds? And that's a valid concern. Um, but I think front-end development then will shift towards in a way that you are going to use AI, but you're going to add more touches, human touches on top of it in order to make it more innovative, more value-centric towards the applications. And actually what we're building here with Neuroship AI, it's also kind of shifting that. We are going to shift the work of developers in a way that they are going to be able to easily use AI to assist them to remove the part that is boring. Because let's say take infrastructure or platform engineers. They're working with a lot of templates and boilerplate codes every day. Maybe some, some people actually enjoy it, but it's, it's repetitive work. It's, it's a lot of time wasted on repetitive work. And that's why I think using a product like Nourishit, it helps them in order to just think about more high level stuff rather than doing the whole typing and coding around it. And we really see value of this in businesses because it will help them in order to reduce the amount of uh, time they allocate for developers because, as you already can imagine, developers are expensive, especially senior developers that have multiple layers of experience in different uh, toolings are very hard to find. And, and also Europe is actually, I think, is suffering from that because it's very hard to find talent. That's why I think it's very important to really understand how this can bring value and make sure that we can use AI in the right direction to reduce the cost. And a business owner or a product owner will see the real value of this whenever they can accelerate the development of the product by having a, a base to start with. Because building the space to start with, to build upon that, is taking a lot of time of a product, product team. And I've seen that in various companies. And so, yeah, I think 
this shift will happen eventually and that will be the the point that people will realize yes this shift is happening i, I think this is gonna happen gradually actually and i think in 10 years we will see this dramatic shifts as well awesome thank you for sharing that um on that note are there any other topics that come to mind that you think are worth covering um today I think AGI could be an interesting topic as well. Artificial general intelligence. Yeah, on on that note, the hygiene around AI and just like the term AI, can you maybe expand a little bit more? Um, because I think most of what we refer to when we speak about AI is data processing technologies, LLMs, Gen AI, etc. Can you expand a little bit more on the like broad plus technical definitions of AI in your world? Yeah, actually the term AI brought to public from 1940s, I guess. And and the scientists back then were actually trying to experiment with very simple uh, neurons, perceptrons. And they were trying to understand how a human brain works. Actually, lately we realized that it's actually not really how our brain works, but we have came up with something different. And on that note, Jeffrey Hinton recently had uh, announced that he is leaving Google uh, on uh, his concerns about generative AI because he thinks that we are actually building a new type of intelligence uh, which can be more advanced compared to human intelligence. It's a new type of intelligence that he didn't even think that could rise from generative AI. And that's a very interesting topic because we were thinking that we are trying to mimic human brain for all these years, for all these, I think, 70, 80 years. And in the end, we are realizing that, no, this is not how human brain works. We are actually, by engineering different parts, different components of neural networks, we are building something else. This is indeed intelligence, because what we define as in artificial intelligence is an entity that can solve general problems by learning from a different context and applying to another concept. And being able to transfer this learned knowledge to another context is happening right now with AI, but this is not exactly similar to what human brains work. And that could be concerning because they can become even better than us. That's why Jeffrey Hinton has raised his voice in order to raise this concern that maybe this can land in hands of some malicious actors and they can leverage this in order to build weapons and weaponize AI. Uh, and I think that's a valid concern as well uh, because we have seen very, very interesting responses from GPT-4 which actually really shows really essence of intelligence because you have not doubted to uh, answer various of sparks of intelligence. You can already see that this is already kind of emerging and th these are I think baby steps of AGI which is gonna happen soon and uh, as soon as companies or entities that have enough computation power to build these large language models to leverage more data I think it it will become concerning that who is actually in possession of these AI superpowers so I I have a couple of questions to to kind of like um, dissect that a little bit a lot of the arguments around the danger of AI evolving into like further levels of sophistication always tied back to the humans who get a hold of it, not the AI or the technology itself. 
arguably, like any humans don't need new technology to cause irreparable wide scale damage as it is. It sounds like the scale is even more potentially harmful with these technologies, but I, arguably, a, like AI technology developments are not the problem. It's maybe other infrastructures and how we run our institutions and make decisions as a species that are actually the problem. They just exacerbate those underlying human network infrastructures. I'm curious what you think about that. Like, do you think the technology in itself is inherently malicious or dangerous or like everything else, it's like the people? Yeah, I think uh, I think history has shown that technologies can be used differently in hands of different actors. Nuclear power can become a very good source of energy as well as becoming a bomb. And this can this can be applied on various other technologies as well as AI. So we can use AI to cure uh, diseases. We can find medicines and drugs that solve very, un, let's say, for now, uncurable diseases. And it, it's fascinating how it can help us to really, let's say, go towards salvation. But at the same time, if it is in hands of malicious actors or it is actually uh, not managed well, and by that I mean not being able to resolve the challenges of around bias. Bias is something as uh, actually very important topic right now because the models that we are training have data bias in them. And this data bias would lead to different uh, sophistications and, and problems because it will eventually make discriminations uh, inherently with the uh, training these kind of uh, models with biased data and eventually will become a threat to humanity as well. So that's why definitely we need to have good governance over AI and uh, there are people that are already raising their words in order to build this governance. Actually OpenAI in the beginning was founded based on this philosophy, based on this slogan that we want to make AI accessible for everyone, but in a in a safe way. But it's inevitable by having published these old research around AI, all of the other actors will also be aware of it and they will try to weaponize it. And I think we don't have an answer yet there, how we can eliminate the risk factors in there. I don't think there's a proper answer and nobody has an answer, I think, for that, but there will be concerns around it. And probably there will be an arm race of AI pretty soon among big big uh, superpowers in order to reach and reach to, to the point that they can weaponize AI even. And I think that that will eventually happen. Maybe even people are condemning that for now, but I think that this will eventually happen. On that note, just to end things off, you mentioned how one of the attractions in getting into learning about machine learning and AI was to untangle your own your own interpretation of your existence and why you're here and what it means to be a human. I'm curious if the path that you found yourself on has helped you answer that question. And if so, yeah, where have you landed with that? <laughs> yeah, that that was a very ambitious, let's say, path that I took. I, I don't know if I'm going to reach to let's say an answer in that sense but i think even trying to 
move on that path is very, very satisfying and important for me. I made this and my life goal, let's say, in order to go towards this path to, to answer these questions. Maybe one day we will have an answer by some super, super powered AI. But yeah, the, the reason that I actually was fascinated by this because humans during the history, they try to understand the universe. We actually had lots of brilliant mathematicians and physis physicists that they try to understand how the world works, the, the governing law about, about, about the universe and trying to really come up with a formula one type of formula that describes everything. One of the closest findings that physicists had was superstring theory, which actually is now an evolving kind of theory. But that was very fascinating for me that if we can really describe our world using just one formula uh, that is actually applicable in everywhere and every part of our universe. And that could explain how humans or actually life has come to existence and then evolved to human beings. And human beings has this, I think, most fascinating production of universe, which is our brain. Kind of way to perceive. Actually, we are kind of eyes for universe to perceive itself. Because if, if we were not here, universe could have not seen itself. We are the eyes to perceive itself and kind of realize itself that, yes, I exist as a universe. And this consciousness concept and and definition also kind of entangles with that as well, how this actually works. And that was the reason that I was trying to discover this. But also, it was very important to understand if our world is deterministic or indeterministic, in a sense that Newton was actually trying to explain that everything has a cause, like a causality. And you can predict, let's say, let's say 10 years later, in which restaurant you're going to have a meal and what meal you are going to have, because F equals to MA and everything is predictable. But afterwards, quantum mechanics came into the picture and Heisenberg said, no, it's not predictable. We cannot measure electrons, velocity and uh, disposition at, at the same time. So that's really collapsed our view of our universe, how we can perceive the universe, even do we really exist or someone is perceiving us so we exist. So it, it was very fascinating for me to understand that and trying to understand this is, of course, sometimes beyond our intelligence, beyond our imagination. You cannot imagine electrons being in multiple places at the same time or existing and not existing at the same time. So this kind of a dimension, I think we, we might not be able to, as humans, discover. But I think, as Jürgen Schmidt-Huber said, this is a step towards evolution of humans. Maybe by building an artificial intelligence, which is superior to our intelligence, but will solve humanity's dilemmas and problems. We will not be the crown of existence and intelligence anymore. There might be other species or entities that are far more superior in intelligence compared to us, but it was born by humans. That's what fascinates me. Awesome. Well, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know it's a Saturday. And I think thank we, you. 